Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Peter. We've been looking at the believer's responsibility for godly living. And if you are using your pew Bible, it's on page 1,215, 2 Peter Again, I'll read verse 1 through 5. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by a righteousness, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege to have the Word of God in our hands, to be able to look at it, read it, think about it, carry it with us where we go, read it wherever we are, listen to it, Lord, in the preaching of the Word, there are so many privileges that we take for granted of. I pray we wouldn't take for granted of these things. They may not be there tomorrow. But your word would be there. So embedded in our heart so we don't forget it, so we know what it says, so we know what we're supposed to do. And I pray, Lord, as we step out every day to live this in this world, I pray that we'd grow more and more in Christ-likeness. For we know, Lord, that's the spirit of God's goal, and that you, that's what you want us to cooperate with. You've given us everything to do that. So now, Lord, allow us to do it. In Christ, I pray. Amen. So the Christian's participation in the divine nature, I have already said, gives the believer a new ability to resist sin through union with Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, and which also gives a desire to weaken the flesh, and then, of course, a greater desire to obey the Spirit and please Christ and have the Spirit of God in us strengthened so our life, the pattern of our life, will be that of godliness and holiness. So Christians, as they grow in holiness, being separated more and more unto God, is another way of saying it, see clearly that their need to separate themselves from the moral corruption that is so much a part of our fallen world. And at the same time, recognize in their life there are certain distractions that need to be removed that are not sinful. There are certain things that do not profit us spiritually or cause maturity as a believer. Those two need to be put off from us. And they may be different uh, from every per other person. 
So God restores us in salvation. He makes us spiritually alive in salvation. He re- he's recreating in us after he's recreating us in the image of the perfect man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so each Lord's Day, at least the last several ones, the admonition has been and will be to use the power that God has given us, that he's made available to us, to grow in godliness. We saw in uh, verse 3 and 4 what God has done, and now we are, as, as Christians, we are to do what God says to do, and of course that is to grow in these qualities that are listed here in this passage of Scripture. So discipline, I've mentioned, is the secret of godliness, and God intends for his children to be godly. That is his goal for us. That should be our goal for ourselves. And that means each day a godly person leads his life that reflects what God is doing in that life. And a godly person is really growing in their desire to please God in their thinking and what they're thinking about, in their speaking and how they're speaking to other people. And they're doing, what are they actually doing? What are you doing in your private time as well as in your public time? It should be quite the same. And what are you in your being? What is God creating in your being? Who are you? Who are you 24-7? And then also your feelings. Are your feelings being directed by truth? Or are they being directly directed by the whims of the world and by some information that you received on a particular day? See, we must add to what God has already given us. We must increase in it. We must proceed to grow in it. And we know as we do that, as we add to our faith, then that is what's going to give us stability in our life. There's an ethical list of virtues listed in our passage And of course, these virtues are to be lived out by the Christian that constitutes ultimately what a godly life looks like. So this is what Christians are to do, and this is what they are enabled by the Spirit of God to do, and this is what we are to discipline ourselves to do. We are to add to, we are to supplement our faith. In verse number 5, it says there, We are in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. So I'm going to kind of park on knowledge this morning, that we Christians are to lavishly supply to our Christian faith all the virtues until they culminate in love, which is the last one there. So your faith is a living faith, it's an active faith, it's an energetic faith, And we are to cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God, adding to our faith uh, what is found in this passage of Scripture. And from last week, I wanted you to notice that we're not left to guess what we're to add to our faith. We're actually given it to us right here in Scripture. There are seven qualities to work out in every avenue and compartment of your life. And they are not to be worked on as a one-at-a-time deal, but actually think about it as they, you are growing in all of them all at the same time. And what are they? Well, the, fi- the first five of them appear to be uh, 
characteristics that grow out of our relationship with God, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. And then the last two represent our relationship to his, and of course, uh, and people's, our fellow man, people that we interact with. And of course, that would be brotherly kindness and love. So today, we're to add to our faith knowledge. Now, I read this uh, article once um, where a food processing uh, marketed a cake mix to the public. Uh, And of course, in this cake mix, it required that the housewife or whoever's making the cake would only add water, and it would be a fine cake. Uh, The company did not understand, however, when they put it on the market, it did not sell at all. And they wondered why. And they found out people felt uneasy about the mix that required only water. Uh, So it seemed too simple to them. And so what they did is they put out a new product, uh, the same product, but on the label they put, just add one egg. And the product took off, and everybody bought it. See, they just had to add that one thing, and it made the product sell. This morning, I want you to look at and think about what the Bible says here in verse number 5, that we're to add to, that we're to supplement our faith with knowledge. Now, of these seven qualities, we are to grow in two that are foundational qualities, and five are directional qualities. This Lord's Day, I want to look at the second of the two foundational qualities. Scripture calls us to bring every effort to bear upon the process of cultivating our spiritual growth, and that is to increase the image of Christ in our Christian character. And these are qualities that help to form that image in us. So these qualities already deserve our utmost effort. The first one I've already mentioned last week, and that was the quality of moral excellence. Of course, a simple way to say that is to supplement your faith with goodness. The quality of goodness is demonstrated in our living, in our good habits, that we form as a believer and as fleshly desires that we had being discarded and put away from us. So we are to be people who are to be honorable in our behavior, not just the absence of bad habits, but the pursuit of what is morally right, what is helpful and good in our relationships with each other. So moral excellence one has said, is the state of the achieved whereby the soul, the inner man, operates on the level of goodness. So Christians are able to live out this virtuous life not because of our own efforts alone, but because of Christ's life within us. And that's really the difference between an unbeliever and a believer, is the life of God is in us, the Spirit of God is in us. And so we have, uh, all we have to do is look around us 
and we see the handiwork of God's providential goodness all around us in his creation, in his special revelation the word of God. So all that emanates from God, his decrees, his creation, his laws, his providence, cannot be otherwise than good because God is good. And because God is good, we can actually live out that characteristic that now is stamped upon our soul in our daily life. And of course, what defines goodness, I mentioned that last week, is the word of God and the character of God. So when when we learn goodness, we learn goodness really by keeping our eyes on Jesus, who who he is and what he has done, how he acts in the word of God, how he acts in the Gospels. This is one thing about goodness that is always true. And it's this. You can't exhaust being good. Just think of that. Have you ever heard anyone, would anyone ever say with with their right mind, stop being so good to me? No, nobody would say that, right? We like when we're being treated well and good. We like that, right? We should be doing that with other people. Why? Because we're Christians, right? And we want to treat people and reflect the goodness of God to them. I never heard anybody say, stop being good to me, I can't take it. Have you? I don't think, if you have, I want to talk to you. All right? I want want to tell me your story, but I've never heard it. See, goodness is controlled by the second foundational quality, and it's knowledge. Notice in verse 5, in your faith supply moral excellence and your moral excellence knowledge. See, knowledge is in reference to the intellectual part of the human personality. That knowledge actually is used some 16 times, uh, and what we need more than anything else is to have an accurate knowledge about matters of life and death, about how to be right with God and how to tell other people how to be right with God, about eternity, and, of course, entrance into the kingdom of God. If you look at verse number 11 of chapter 1, it says this, for in this way the the entrance into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. In other words, if you add to your faith these qualities... Entrance into the kingdom of God will be abundantly supplied. In other words, you'll have no problem walking the narrow road to be welcomed into the kingdom of God because that's what God is doing. He's making us ready for him. The only way anyone can reach the final destination is to get real knowledge that is based on what is true and what is right. In this uh, epistle in this the Greek language that is used in the original, Peter actually uses two different Greek words to translate our English word knowledge. One is epigenosis, which means full knowledge, or what comes to know what we come to know and appropriate through faith in Christ. And that would be called a true knowledge, too, because we didn't have that knowledge. We weren't born with that knowledge. That is a knowledge that only comes when one believes in Jesus Christ. And then now the Lord opens it up to us. He opens up everything to us about what is really true, especially what is true about him and what he's doing and how one 
becomes a believer. There's a second word, though, he uses, and this is the one that probably more, more defines the word knowledge we're using this morning, is that it's a knowledge that is, uh, is not necessarily well-known. It's a knowledge that we grow in. It's, it's a knowledge of how do I have good sense in my life? How can I have un- greater understanding uh, in a particular, on a particular subject? How can I have greater insight uh, to help somebody or wisdom? Another way of looking at it is wisdom. It means knowledge that is not necessarily complete yet. God, you're growing in it. I don't have all the answers in it. Matter of fact, we may not get all the answers to all the questions we have on this side of eternity. Most likely we will not. But we are to be growing in this knowledge. It is a growing knowledge. Scripture is saying to keep stimulating those intellectual appetites that God has given you in conversion and don't check your brains at the door. Don't do that. Don't check out intellectually. And a lot of times in Christianity today, there is a, there is, they're, they're not checking the box about I need to know more. It's more about emoting. It's more about emotionalism. Uh, now evangelism is driven by music instead of knowledge. Music's not going to bring you to Christ. It's not even going to make you more sanctified, no matter how great it is. Only thing's going to sanctify you is the truth. That's what Jesus says. The truth will sanctify you. It is the truth that is given to us. So knowledge definitely includes knowledge of Christ, but it also includes wisdom and discernment that the Christian needs to grow in the, uh, the various different things in Scripture that where when we get a greater knowledge of Scripture, it leads to practical action. I know how to not just know it, I know how to do it. I'm not just to hear the word, but I am actually a doer of the word. Now, the fact of the term being used by Peter Actually, it's a a repeated refrain in 2 Peter. If you look at verse number 2 of chapter 1, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Look at verse number 8 of chapter 1. For if... These qualities are yours and are increasing. They render you neither useless or unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the defilement of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. And then look at the last verse of 2 Peter, chapter 3, verse 18, the last verse. It says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So in other words, the Bible is very clear in 2 Peter that knowledge is really important for you to be growing in the Lord. You cannot bypass your mind to become spiritually minded. 
You cannot lay aside your brains and think that if you lay on your pillow and put your Bible underneath it, somehow it's going to migrate into your brain and soul and, and give you what you need. No, you have to put the effort in. All right, We're adding to our faith. We're putting ourselves there. We're listening, really listening to the Word of God when it's being preached. When we're reading the Word of God, we're not thinking about something else, and yet our eyes are going through the Word. And then we, when we get done, we say, well, what did that really say? See, are we engaging in it in a way where our mind is in gear? See, the Scripture is stressing an imperative for living life well. It's this. If we are going to finish this life well, we must know God. To faith in Christ, let us add a praiseworthy life, and then let us add knowledge. So in other words, we must get to working on knowing God. Now, he's talking to Christians here. He's not talking to people who who are in the world, who are secular, who are religious. He's talking to believers. He's saying to you, you don't know God enough. That's your problem. Your problem is not three things you didn't do here, or three things to have a good marriage, or three things to be a better spiritual Christian. No, that's not it. You and I need to know God. That's the problem. That's all our problems. Because once we know God and are growing in our knowledge of him, true knowledge of God, we will be stable. We will be, we won't be like that reed blown through, uh, being blown left and right and by every wind of doctrine. We will be stable like an oak tree because we are, our roots are deep in what the Bible teaches about who God is. So knowing Christ and God's will enables us to live for him. So like I would have been using the weightlifter as a, an example, the weightlifter who, who takes his knowledge of his sport and goes into the gym with exercises that target building particular muscle groups. The chest, he does, uh, the, chest, he does the upper chest and the lower chest. He does the arms, he has exercises for biceps, for triceps, for forearms. He, he builds his shoulders so they're big. He builds his back and laterals, his, his legs and his calves. All the body parts have different exercises that go with it. So he or she becomes an athlete who effectively implements each exercise to achieve results. I want to see a bigger bicep. I want to, I want to see stronger legs. I want to direct those exercises to make those things happen. But I have to put the work in. I have to put the effort in. But if the weightlifter does not produce practical action, which leads to results, well, one would have to conclude it's useless. It is fruitless behavior if you're going to work out and then every day stop at McDonald's to have the big... Soda and the you know, the hamburger and all the stuff that goes with it. it you're defeating your purpose, right? Yeah, all of it goes together. And what, but that comes from knowledge. It comes from knowing exactly what to do. It's in a similar way in the, in the spiritual realm. If practical action does not lead to producing God's character in us, the character of Jesus in us, it could actually be worse than useless. It can blind us 
as one person said, to our true sorry state. If you notice in verse number 9 of chapter 1, Peter is actually going to teach us this when we get there. Notice what it says. It says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. See, in other words, if I don't do, if these things are not being added to my faith and to your faith, we are actually people that kind of have our head in the sand. We don't even see. We're short-sighted. We can't even see what we ought to do. We were, oh, I don't know what to do. That's not should be not that should not be the case for a believer. And to me, that doesn't sound like a good place for a Christian to be who is called by God. It sounds like a very uncertain position to be in as a Christian. It sounds like it could even challenge the whole credibility of a Christian's profession of faith if they are blind and short-sighted to the things that God wants them to do. See, God places no premium on ignorance in Scripture, or we wouldn't have the Bible that we have. It takes study to understand the Bible. And it takes years of study and meditating and listening, and, and we're always constantly growing. We're never in a stagnant state as believers. So God doesn't pr- uh, produce, uh, he doesn't place any premium on ignorance. He actually expects us to expand our mental horizons constantly. And there is enough unexpected or unexplored, may I say, truth in the Bible to occupy our thoughts for all eternity. It'll take a long time, and it does take a long time, to grasp all the inexhaustible truths of the Word of God. Sometimes we we may think that we have arrived, because we've been in the faith for a long time, we have arrived at knowing a significant amount of knowledge about God. And then we discover we're quite deficient in our knowledge about God, that we, we don't actually know enough about God. You think that you have arrived at some point in your life, and then you discovered so much more is to be learned about our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Even our intellectual community who investigates and studies our universe has not even touched the hem of the garment of the vastness and the complexity of our universe and our world that we live in. They're just touching it. Even the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 11, when he was giving us good and sound theology, he realized at the end of that, when God was, what, what, what God was going to do in the future, he did not even plan on what God was going to tell him, teach him. And this is what he says. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Who has known the mind of God? Who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? And then Paul says this, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, Paul says, As soon as I thought I had God figured out, he took a left turn 
and I had to follow him to find out what was next. And that's how it always has to be. Us as human finite beings will never figure out everything about God. We just won't do it. So that means that I must put a premium on learning more about him. So this, Paul even tells us in the word of God, we surely don't want to be like the Jews in scripture who thought they were in God's family, and yet this is what it says in scripture. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for you, for them is that for their salvation, wait a minute, they thought they were saved. And then he says this, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And then it says this, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. And if you don't subject subject yourself to the righteousness of God, your righteousness cannot save you. Right? That's what the Jews didn't get. Of course, some of them got it because they believed the gospel. And that's a lot of the things that we don't get. That's why people say, well, how do you know that... Um, how, if God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say to him? Well, I'm a good person. I, 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 I do good works. I'm religious. Wrong, wrong answers. The only way anyone gets to heaven is God's righteousness that is stamped upon us and is received not by works but by faith. Right? That's what it says in Scripture. You know, how many people miss that who are religious their whole life, go to church two, three times a week? That's not going to save you. You have to believe the righteousness of Christ, that when I believe in what Christ has done on the cross, he takes my sin and nails it to the cross, and he takes his righteousness and puts it on my account by faith, not by works. There's nothing I could do, you could do, anyone could do to obtain that. Christ did it for us on the cross, and that's what I believe. And then he gives us his spirit. If you miss that, you realize you're heading on the road to hell. So what does Paul do? He says that they had a zeal without knowledge. But we need both, Christians. Christians have a God-given responsibility to use our minds and not check our brains at the door. We need both zeal and knowledge together, scriptural knowledge, right? Not our own knowledge. This is not any old knowledge. This is God's knowledge. See, Paul also prayed and uh, just take your Bible and turn there. He also prayed in Ephesians, back I mean, turning forward to Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians. He said in Ephesians, he actually prayed in Ephesians that all Christians would know God. He uses the same word to mean insight or knowledge, that they would have insight about God, they would have knowledge about God. And notice what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. That's Christ. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. He is basically saying, praying for them that the believers there at Ephesus would know God. Wait a minute, I thought they do know him. They do know him. 
by way of salvation, but they don't know enough about him for their daily life and daily living. And we need to know that. So this is not knowing a number of things about God, like God is great and God is mighty and God is majestic. We need to know those things about God because the demons have knowledge of the greatness and the might and the majesty of God. And where does it lead the demons? It says in James, it leads them to trembling and to shuddering in fear. Where it says in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder, they tremble. Why? They know the power of God. Because demons are just created angels that fell in their pride, right? That's all they are. And so they, are, they know they're going to be responsible to God. In fact, God is holding them in judgment right now to those who rebelled against them and were sent out uh, of his presence. He's holding those who are in, right now in judgment in hell until the last day of judgment. Now, there are some demons that, of course, that are not bound. They're free, but they're doing wrecking havoc. And you know what they're trying to do the most is keep you from the knowledge of God. If they can do that, they will do that, and they're good at doing it. All right. So if you can be distracted for away from God in, with good things, he will provide it for you. Good, not sinful things, good things, wholesome things. All right. And what happens is that you seem to go overboard with it and spend so much time. Just for example, Facebook. How many hours can you spend behind your computer on Facebook? You don't realize sometimes it's hours that you spend behind the screen, looking up little details about other people's lives. I wonder how this person is doing, that person's doing, right? That's, you, that's what you do, but you know what? You're distracted, and you got time robbed from you because curiosity kicked in, and you wanted to know more and more, and you spend more and more time on it, and then you have more and more followers and more and more people to look up, and then before you know it, you're spending a chunk of time on Facebook and it's distracting to you, and it is not contributing to your spiritual growth at all. See, those are some things that you and I as Christians need to put aside, because you, do you know that one could have an interest in theology? They can read many Christian books on theology and apologetics and a variety of Christian subjects, and one may have a, even a good grasp and knowledge of church history, one may also have learned to find their way around Scripture quite efficiently. They may even lead a Bible study, listen to tons of sermons, because you can do that today, right, of some of the greatest and best preachers out there. They can read Christian blogs till it's coming out of their ears, and all that may be that is you're just getting a bunch of knowledge about God. But I tell you what, a person can know about God and yet not know God. You realize that, right? Because not knowing God is the, is the problem. It doesn't mean that we can't pass a test on facts about the Bible. That's not, that doesn't prove anything except maybe you're a good person. You can memorize things. No, we need to know who God is. And so that means that some of the things that we're putting into our head we're, we're flooding our head with so much stuff, we can't land on one thing about God because we have too much stuff going on in there. So the prayer here in Ephesians 
is for the saints to have a true knowledge of God that is personal, that is intimate knowledge, where God is real to them and to us, and we are conscious of his presence. To know a person means something beyond a casual acquaintance. Knowledge means an intimate, personal, special knowledge of God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Like it says in in Corinthians, for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, there's really several reasons why we need to use our minds. At least four reasons. You didn't know you didn't know all that was in that word knowledge in verse five, did you? The first reason why we we need to use our minds is because we are created to think. We're created in the image of God. In other words, we are to participate in the divine nature. And this divine likeness in man is in his capacity and her capacity to think. We see God's, God communicates with man in a way he does not communicate with animals. He expects men, he expects humanity to cooperate with him cooperate with him consciously and also intellectually. Men men are called to think and respond. In tilling the garden, God told Adam, after he placed him in the garden, Adam was to discriminate rationally as well as morally between what he is permitted to do and the one thing he was prohibited to do. Adam, everything is yours. See this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you stay away from it, and that's mine. That's what he told Adam, right? And Adam had to make the choice of to obey or, or not obey, and he was given that ability by God. So since man is different from animals, should we not behave differently? Psalm 32, verse 9 says this, Do not be the horse or the mule which has no understanding. Don't be like them. However, sometimes God's people don't obey as well as the animals do, right? Well, look if you look at of the prophet Isaiah, right in chapter 1, go right into the Old Testament, you'll find that right after Proverbs, not too far, you'll find Isaiah. But Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 1, tells us this in verse number 3 and 4. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. And then it says, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity. Iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. And then 
in the end of the verse, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. So what is it saying there is that the animals have a better understanding of who God is and respond to God in an obedient way, and Israel doesn't even know me, and they're supposed to be my people. And why don't they know me? Because they don't have any knowledge. They somehow given that up. They thought maybe they've arrived. And without turning back there, just keep your hand right there in Isaiah. Back in 2 Peter, this is what it says about the false teachers. In chapter 2, in verse number 12 of 2 Peter, it says, But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they counted pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deception as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. He's saying they're just like the animals. They act just like the animals. Just look at their life. They're acting just like they don't know me. If you know me, that wouldn't be going on. If you know me, your life would be different. Your behavior would be different. Your thinking would be different. Everything would be different because you know me. And the false teachers say they know God, but by their deeds they deny him. They really don't know who God is. In fact, if you're right there still in Isaiah, look down chapter 1, verse number 18 and 20, because Isaiah actually communicates to this rebellious people of Israel to come and think about what the Lord is saying because because there are consequences when you disobey. Look at verse number 18. It says, come now, let us reason together. Doesn't Doesn't that assume thinking? Says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land, verse 20. And if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's talking to these rebellious people, and he says, listen, because you cast off knowledge, this is going to be the result. Because the result's going to be disobedience, and disobedience has its implications. So the first reason we are to use our mind is because, because of creation, because we are to think. Second goes along with that, and it's we are created to think God's thoughts. We are created to think about God. Christianity is a revealed religion. It is not a mystical religion. It is a religion based on facts and truth and factual history and real people that God really did create the heaven and the earth. He really did speak it into existence. He really did, when you read the Old Testament, talk to these men and use these 
men of, the, of old. He did communicate with them. So see, we have a revealed religion. God speaks to us through the created universe. Psalm chapter 19, if you're familiar with that psalm, probably one of the most famous psalms when it comes to general revelation, where it says in Psalm 19, verse 1 through 4, the heavens are telling the glory of God and their expanses declaring the works of his hands. Day to day pour forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. When we look out at creation, what is it telling us? It's telling us, listen, there's a God out there who has knowledge, who has order, who has placed everything right where it's supposed to be, at the distances they're supposed to be, at the Everything is where it ought to be because God put it there and spoke it there. And until, and he holds it together, and until he decides to step back and let it all fall apart, which Second Peter is going to address, it's going to remain steadfast and reliable. Tomorrow I would pretty much say uh, you're going to wake up and you're going to see the sunrise. It's going to be daytime. And the sun's going to set and you're going to see night. I can, you can bank on that. I can bank on that right now. But someday, when Christ comes back in judgment, everything's going to fall apart. All right? But isn't that knowledge too? That's knowledge of what's going to take place. Who has that knowledge except believers? Nobody has that knowledge unless you open up the Bible and study it and read it. And that gives us stability to know, listen, I'm not going to put all my eggs in the same basket and put everything my ten pegs down too deep in this earth because I'm just passing through. I'm a sojourner, and I'm heading home. I'm heading to, the, heading to the kingdom of God. So that knowledge gives me the ability to know it's not the end. Death is not the end. Death is a doorway into the presence of God for those who know Christ, right? And it, death is also a doorway because everybody will be raised from the dead, one to a judgment of righteousness and one to a judgment of, of wicked or damnation. And so either way, people are going to be raised from the dead. But for a Christian, they know for sure that when they die, they will go to heaven what? based on truth in the word of God, not just based on some mystical thing they heard from, from somebody or some platitude that was, was, uh, was given to them by some religious system. No, this is truth. This is God is behind saying this. That means it's reliable 110. It's a reliable 1,000%, right? I can trust God because it says in Titus 1, God can't lie to us. God won't lie to us. His very character will not allow him to lie to us. So see, God wants us to think God thoughts. In fact, creation also is mentioned in Romans chapter 1, where it says in Romans chapter 1, verse number 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. He's talking about people. For God made it evident to them. Now, that's, now just think about that for a moment. The Bible is saying, listen, what God made himself evident to everyone. Well, we can't even disagree with that from the scripture because it says God made it evident within them. He's already put it in inside of everybody. They're just suppressing that knowledge. They're holding it down or 
they're confusing it with other things and believing other things. It says, for God made it evident to them, verse 20 of Romans 1, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. They're not cloudy. They're clearly seen being understood through what was what has been made so that we are without excuse. Everybody's without excuse. And that's just creation. That's not even special revelation, the Bible. Right? God has also given us special revelation. Communication in words. Com- communication in the written word that we can actually it can, it's locked up in history. Do you know that in the Old Testament, written in Hebrew and Aramaic, it's a language that is dead. That means there's no new vocabulary being added to that language. That means it cannot increase or decrease in understanding of what it says. And then in the New Testament, Koine Greek is the same way. God rendered it dead. It's a dead language. It's not spoken anywhere. All the vocabulary is locked up. So that means God God has done that because now the word of God remains stable, steadfast, inerrant, without error, and fully trustworthy. For all who, who read it and study it, they will find in it the way of salvation. That's what they will do. They will find in it the way of salvation. So God communicates in words He has revealed words to our mind, and our duty is to receive the message, to submit to the message, to seek to understand the message, and to relate it to the world in which we live. One of the highest and noblest functions of man's mind is to listen to God's word. The very fact that we have ears to hear is so that we would ultimately hear the word of God going into our ear and into our mind so we can understand who he is and what he requires us of us. If we fail to use our minds, then we actually descend to the level of animals. And the Lord pointed out to the prophet Hosea that his people's main problem was they were lacking something. Listen what it says without turning there in Hosea chapter 4, Verse 1, it says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the Lamb because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. And then he says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. So why is it? That we live in a day of mass media and all kinds of information at our fingertips and plenty available biblical knowledge, and yet we suffer from the same malady. There's no knowledge of God. If there is, it's very little, and the, the knowledge that has been given is rejected or reinterpreted. No knowledge of God in the land. That's the greatest judgment a nation could ever have. And for the church, 
It's a lack of thinking. It's a lack of meditating on the knowledge of God. And there's one other thing that we are created. We are created to have a renewed mind. Romans chapter 12, verse number 2. The renewed mind, what is the renewed mind? The renewed mind is now subject and open to divine truth. Not just secular truth. It says in Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 2, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. That is to assume an outward expression that reflects what is deep within. And this process takes place in our minds for it is our thought life that controls our attitudes and our feelings and our actions. And we are to let our lives be changed from the inside out. And brethren, how much our minds were opposed to God before we became believers. John Calvin says, indeed, nothing can be more true that the renewal of the mind is necessary for successful inquiry to every part of the will of God. The natural man is in everything opposed to the mind of God. And that's what we were before Christ. We thought we were on board with God and religious, but we find out when we become believers that we were opposed to God because we were reinterpreting things in our own mind when we came to the scripture, we said, well, that's not what it is at all. So here's a renewal of a believer's mental powers in Romans chapter 12. Our whole body life is to be evidenced by a constant inner metamorphosis, which is actually the very Greek word used there. It means to be changed in form, to be transformed, to be changed in character. So the Holy Spirit of God wants to etch the likeness of Jesus Christ on our character. That's what he wants to do. Are we cooperating with that? That's the thing. He does it by the word of God. And he does it for what reason? So we test out the will of God. And that's why it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that you may prove what the will of God is. The good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God, that the renewed mind is bent. It's bent on finding out and following God's will. And that is the revealed will of God, not the secret will of God. The secret will of God is up to God. We can't figure that out. But the, the prescriptive will of God found in the word of God, we can find out. Because it's right here in the word of God. So the Christian is, is the one who's asking some questions when they are studying the word, when they are evaluating their own life. And, and the question should be is, how do I actually test out the will of God? Well, it could be questions like this. Is the thing, is the thing that I'm getting involved with really good for me? And is it glorifying and pleasing to my Lord? If, if you answered no, then it's done. Or is it well-pleasing to God as far as my attitude? Is my attitude in this situation pleasing to God? Are my thoughts about God and other people pleasing to the Lord? 
are my feelings. What's going on in my feelings? Am I filled with the feelings of anger and bitterness and resentment? I know that's not pleasing to the Lord, so I have to deal with that. That's not God's will for me. That's the flesh taking over that rebel voice inside of us saying, you have every right to act like that because of what they did to you and said to you. No, we have every right to act like God wants us to act. And God's given us the power to act in the right way. Oh, yeah, we fall on our face. Don't think, uh, I'm not saying that we're perfect in every circumstances. We fall on our face, we sin. But what do we do when we sin? We get up, we identify the sin, we confess the sin. We know in 1 John 1, 7 through 9, that he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. So we get back up, start walking in the light, because God's in the light, and keep going, right? That's what we do. Why? That's what pleases God. That's what's right for us. That we can even ask, too, is it complete in and of itself? Is it something that will bring about Christ-likeness? Is it, is it something that will enhance my spiritual maturity, or will this thing, good or bad, hinder my Christian growth? Even, like I said, good things need to be laid aside because they're distracting and they're not profitable. So the Word of God is really the criterion. It is the measuring stick for knowing what is good, well-pleasing, and advances maturity. We discover from His Word alone, and we subject all our own conceptions to what is good for us, what is pleasing to Him, and complete, holy being evaluated by the Word of God. Every test made without the Word of God is deceptive and wrong. The renewed mind does not want to disregard God's will. The renewed mind wants to know it, understand it, and do it. And then there's one last thing, reason why we should think, and it's this, judgment. We are going to be judged by our knowledge. God will judge us by our knowledge and by our response to his revealed truth. It says this in John chapter 12, verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him, the word. The word I spoke is what will judge him on at the last day. So God holds us responsible for the knowledge we have, he made us thinking beings, rational beings, so that we are to make every effort to add to our faith, to supplement our faith, moral excellence, and to moral excellence, knowledge. It was J.I. Packard who wrote a book, if you haven't get a chance to read it, a long time ago. And... Um, his book was called Knowing God. And in that book, he gave at least four propositions on what he discovered about people who know their God. And he based it on really the life of Daniel in the Old Testament. And he said the first thing was that people who know God have great energy for God. Secondly, the people who know God have great thoughts of God. Thirdly, the people who know God 
show great boldness for God. And fourthly, the people who know God have great contentment in God. They are satisfied in the depth of their soul about everything that God has said and everything that God has done and will do. They are settled. Godliness with contentment is great gain, not only for this life, but for the life to come. That's what Scripture says. So here's the bottom line. The urgent need of the church is the knowledge of God. We need to know God better. If we are going to finish life well, we must know God. We must get to working on knowing God. And we, we must never stop our effort in knowing God. And the more we know Christ, the more we will f- reflect his glory. The glory the Spirit of God imparts to the believer is more excellent and lasts longer than the, the glory that Moses experienced when he was on the mountain and came down with the Ten Commandments and the people could not even look at him because he was in the presence of God. It was John Piper who said it well. He said this, God made us to magnify his greatness the way a telescope magnifies stars. He created us to put his goodness, his truth, and beauty, and wisdom, and justice on display before the world. The greatest display of God's glory comes from deep delight in who he is. And when we do that, by beholding the nature of God with unveiled minds, we can be more like him. In the gospel, we see the truth about Christ, and it transforms us morally as we understand and apply it. Through Christ's life, we can understand how wonderful God is and what he is really like from the gospels. And as our knowledge deepens, the Holy Spirit helps us change into that image. Becoming like Christ is a progressive experience. It's an ongoing, growing experience, and that's what the very word knowledge here means. And the more closely we follow Christ, the more closely we follow Christ, the more we will be like him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, again... I just pray, Lord, that this would be something we will cooperate with you every day of our life. Lord, that we would never be satisfied, never be satisfied with what we know about you. That our hunger and desire to know you more deeply, to know you more profoundly, to know you more intimately, will just become more intense as we live our life, as we look around the world and see things fall apart. Lord, we cannot put our stock in men. We cannot put our stock in philosophies or in religious systems. We must put it all upon you, Lord. And we thank you that we have this privilege given to us that we can actually know you. 
And I pray, Lord, that that desire would just intensify for the sake of the glory of your great name and for the transformation of our mind and for the sanctification of the process the Spirit of God is carrying out in our life. We want to give you all the praise and the glory and honor for all that you have and will do. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.